how do we bring all these pieces together? How do we bring my life story together with the way that I cash flow, with the way that I talk with my partner and have meaning and purpose in my life and make sure that that's all I want? You kind of have to be able to survey the whole landscape and pass through these different stages. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Can anybody find me some money to love? Whoa, I'm sorry. Every ounce of my bean didn't want me to record that and definitely didn't want me to publish it, but I did it. There you have it. I did it. It was horrible, but I didn't die. I didn't get attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. This week's title was too good not to. Thanks for staying tuned in after that. This week, I had a fascinating and informative and a really good conversation with Ed Coombs. Ed is such a personable person, and this conversation just really felt very comfortable, and I really appreciate Ed's down-to-earth style. Now, before we get into this week's show, I want to say a few things. First off, September was our most listened to month for the podcast yet. So that's really cool. Thank you for tuning in. It means a lot. Second, I've been receiving some emails from listeners saying how they've been really enjoying our guest. Thank you for letting me know. It means a lot. Sometimes when you're chatting into the mic with no audience, you're not sure how people are receiving the information or if people are enjoying the guest. So I really enjoy those emails. If you have any suggestions about topics, themes, or potential guests, please send me an email. I'd appreciate it. And I do have a favor. If you're listening and you haven't subscribed, please hit that subscribe button so you get the latest episodes on Thursday when they are released. If you have a friend, a colleague, family member who you think might be interested in our guest and the show, please share an episode with them or two. And finally... Thank you for listening. So who is Ed Coombs? Well, he is the second repeat guest on the show. The first repeat guest was Pre Banerjee, and now Ed Coombs is the second repeat guest. So thank you, Ed. Ed, as he says it, is a firefighter turned financial advisor turned marriage and family therapist, and he knows a lot about walking into high-intensity situations and navigating the flames to make sure everybody walks out safely. His background, as that suggests, is a family therapist, but he has spent over 20 years working with individuals, couples, and families experiencing a wide range of money-related distress. So he's got a lot of experience talking to people about money, emotions, the feelings that those emotions and money creates. And it's interesting that so much of our conversations around money deal with what rate of return or which investment should I take. And those certainly have a place, and we do need to have those conversations. But this conversation with Ed is something that we can't avoid to some degree, because as Ed says, what we're going to talk about is attachment styles and how they relate to money. But these attachment styles are rooted in our biology. We all have them. 
and they all impact us to some degree, some more than others. And that's why I feel like this conversation was so insightful. We're going to be spending a lot of time talking about his new book, The Healthy Love and Money Way, how the four attachment styles impact your financial well-being. And I, I ask Ed, what is financial well-being to him? I ask about why he decided to write this book around the four attachment styles. And interestingly enough, despite how much these attachment styles impact us all, we both haven't seen a book or any other resource that talks about the attachment styles relating to our financial well-being. So I hope you enjoy this really good conversation with Ed Coombs. Ed, welcome back. Sean, thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. And I'm excited to be a returning guest. Yeah, we pretty well had a almost a whole episode recorded before we start recording. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I didn't ask you this. So writing a book, I can imagine, is a big uh, undertaking, especially with the breadth of knowledge that you have. And so my first question is, why did you write this book? But I want to specifically focus on, of course, why did you write this book? But what meaning or significant, if any at all, did this book have on your life's journey? Or does it have on your life's journey? Yeah, yeah, no, that's huge. Well, the, the writing the book came at a really difficult and transitional point for me. I was working towards earning a PhD and was struggling with trying to finish that and kind of in a little bit of an existential crisis of, is this really what I want to do? Is this PhD research thing? I've taken all the courses. And I was like, I have a good sense for how the ideas work together. And there's certainly a place for the academic research and all that. And that's great. But I just realized like that, that's not what lights me up. I like being more of the thought leader and working with people. And, and so you know, Facebook ads for all their evil. Um, I, I think this one came out good. I had a Facebook ad pop up and said, write your first book in 30 days. Um, you follow, we were talking about before the show, we might follow my proven system and it will be successful. <laughs> yeah. and, and how often that actually fails, but this one actually worked. And Did it work? It, it worked for me at least. Yeah. And I was, but it's one of those things that's the right time, the right place. And you know, when people ask me, well, how long did it take you to write the book? Well, it's like, it did take 30 days. But it really took 20 years. Mm-hmm. And what I can now say in reflection is I was ready to distill everything into kind of a synthesis and also share my story of how I've gotten to this place so that people can really know building an effective relationship with your intimate partner around money is a, is a journey. And I know some people maybe hear that and it feels like that can be cliche in some ways, but you know, sitting and I see your office behind you. It's like, I see the variety of books you got. And many look familiar to me just even from the spine, right? But it's, we're on this human journey of trying to make sense out of our life. And what should we be doing with ourselves while we're here? And I've reached this place in my own growth where distilling my ideas and being able to share them is, is being able to join that larger community of voices. Mm. Thanks for that. You say the word reflection twice. Over your 20 years and Before the show, we were talking about change, and you've worked extensively with individuals and couples. What role, if any, does reflection play in change, in our journey, in deciding to continue a PhD or write a book? And I guess, what can we, if anything, gain from this idea of reflection? Well, I think reflection for me is kind of, it's become the bicep curl of the mind, Right, it, it's an active and intentional process of trying to understand who am I now, where have I been, and where am I trying to go. And because I don't think 
I think if you're going to live a life that grows and expands, you're going to have to keep being able to come back to those fundamental questions. Some people are comfortable with where they're at in life and the way life is unfolding. And maybe they don't need to spend as much time actively reflecting. But I think that it's a core human process, especially for those that want to grow and move towards wisdom and maturity, right? And this is not just an esoteric conversation. I think when you look at the neuroscience of the activity of reflection, we can see new neuronal growth happening for people. So literally you're working on the brain architecture in your mind and brain. You're creating new pathways for discrepant ideas to become interconnected with each other. And that's really a big part of how I've gotten to being able to write this book about integrating the psychology of attachment with personal financial planning. Mm -hmm. Nobody else has done that. And I certainly couldn't have done that five, 10 years ago. Right. So, you know, I think that when we engage in an active and intentional reflective process, it leads us to create a deeper sense of meaning and direction and nuance in the way that we live our life. Right. That word resonated with me because for years, I mean, maybe I thought I was doing the act of reflecting, but it was just to like, someone told me to do that. So it was a checklist of, did I reflect today? And it was just like going through the motions. (laughs) I started learning that I was just like redlining, like just not feeling things. I wasn't feeling emotions and keeping myself busy was a good way just to not feel those things. But through practicing reflection, I'm, I'm starting to just realize the depth of many things and decisions and why I'm saying doing things. And when, I mean, for me personally, when it goes to my money relationship, I'm starting to see that, wow, when I actually reflect on these things to some level, I start to understand why I feel this way about certain things and why I'm acting this way. And it, it, it's been really, really interesting. So that word really resonated with me. Oh yeah. No, I just think on that vein, that active reflection piece, right, is it's not just reflecting on the material you have inside of you, but it's, it's balancing back and forth between what's happening inside of me and what am I getting from outside of myself? So you can get stuck in this consumption of a bunch of ideas, but if you don't slow down and reflect and say, what does this mean for me? What parts stand out? How does this start to change underlying assumptions in my life? And then, you know, you get to this interesting place and in, in growth and development where you start to wake up and like, Oh my God, I'm a different person. And that ushers in another type of reflection that has to happen. How do I integrate who I've become from where I started? I can tell you're a therapist because I feel like you're just giving me advice right now. (laughs) (laughs) Very interesting you say that because, yeah, I mean, yeah, for years, I just kept myself busy because the ego was like, it feels so good when someone's like, Sean, you're so busy. How are you doing that? And through some reflection, I just, lots of reflection and again, not perfect. It just, it was an avoidance to feel feelings so that you talk about journey. That's still a journey with no top. Yeah. Yeah. So your book, very, very interesting concept. And like you said, no other book that you can find has integrated the attachment styles with money. I want to go into the four attachment styles, but first the subtitle is how the four attachment styles impact your financial well-being. So, you know, we talk about journey and I definitely believe that life or journey is a mountain with no top. So we're never arriving so this idea of financial well-being is probably something that's not an end destination, but I think it's a really good navigational beacon for us. So for you, if an outcome is to impact our financial well-being, what is that? And if so, can you describe it? Yeah, financial well-being, right? I think most people, when they hear that, they're like, 
and they instinctually say, well, that sounds good. Maybe there's something, <laughs> some merit to that, right? Yeah. How do I want that? I don't think that financial well-being is the word that gets used often in the financial community. I think it's changing, but well-being relative to maybe something that's far more familiar for a lot of people is that goal towards financial independence, right? And so financial well-being in contrast to the idea of financial independence is about interdependent relationships. It's about how I'm experiencing money. It's about what do I feel when I think about the different range of money topics that I have to engage with in life? Am I able to engage in an expanding number of financial topics, right? Or do I stay in my safe zone where I, I only want to look at cash flow and budget, or I only want to look at my investments, or I only want to look at my taxes. I don't know there are too many people out there. I only want to look at my estate plan, but maybe they're out there. I don't yeah. know those folks yet, but I'm sure they're out there. Estate planning attorneys aside, right? But part of financial well-being also includes financial maturation, which is kind of speaks to that open mountaintop concept that you, you're introducing, right? Is we're not fully formed when we come into adulthood. You know, we're continually to grow and mature as humans and gaining insight and wisdom as we go along life. And so that should trickle down into the way we manage our personal financial life. You know, we both are fathers of, of young children and the way you allocate your money now is probably different than when you didn't have kids. You know, how much money you have for your personal recreation is probably dwindled some while the budget for child activities has expanded from zero to thousands of dollars likely. Yes. I, I never bought diapers pre-children, that's for sure. You didn't you weren't going Friday night for like the case of beer yeah. and a 12 pack of diapers. I know. Just because, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely wasn't. So you bring up financial maturation, but in your book you talk about it. Why is it so important to develop financial maturity? And I'm jumping ahead in your book here, but you kind of you're cueing me to talk about that. And you allude to George Kinder's work and you talk about the five stages of financial maturity. Is that correct? Yeah. You kind of started talking about that. I don't know if we should go there. I want to go there. Or should we go to the four attachment styles? It's your book. Which area do you think would be better to start at? I can see Kinder's book on your bookshelf, so I won't lose track of it. Okay. If the one thing you take away from this podcast is you have an attachment system. Every living human, and as far as I understand, most mammals have an attachment system. This is a primary psychological and biological system that we have. No different than that we all have a heart and that it's located on the left side of our chest. No different than we have a skeletal system where the, I don't even know the bone name, so forget it. You get it. The humerus. The humerus doesn't end up down in the femur. The femur doesn't end up in the humerus, right? Yeah. they're designed to be where they're at. And so we have psychological, biological processes that are baked in to our humanity. And the purpose of our attachment system is to help us bond with our primary caretakers, right? So we all know that no baby can survive on their own, independent of their primary caretaker. The length of care changes within the animal kingdom, but because we're talking about humans and finances, so we'll just stay with humans we have a very long child-rearing cycle. And what we can't see happening is that in those first three months, in those first nine months, how much neuroarchitecture is growing and developing within the child. And part of what's happening that's getting baked into that neuroarchitecture is the relational experiences and expectations for mom and dad's caretaking, 
what it literally feels like to be cared for by them. How often they give you eye gaze, how often they give you touch, what it feels like. What is the sound of their voice like? All of those things coalesce into our attachment system and become our standard operating software, if you will, about what relationships are like. Now, we take that and we carry that forward into our adult life. And it becomes a primary lens for which we unconsciously experience our intimate adult relationships. All other relationships as well, but because of the context of what we're saying here, well, let's focus on the the marital relationship. Mm -hmm. So when you're with your intimate partner, they have their attachment system wired. You have yours already pre-wired. And it sets the stage for what you're going to expect to have happen between each other. And when it meets expectations and it feels good, you're in heaven. When it meets expectations and it feels bad, you're in hell. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little extreme. So when we're bringing together two intimate partners, we're trying to blend these two attachment bonding systems now that were developed in different contexts. And so the research over the last 70 years has really flushed out what happens for people in different caregiving situations and how does that attachment system become shaped around particular patterns or ways of functioning. And that's what I highlight in this book is that there's four primary categories in which we can measure your attachment system and say, this is how your attachment system functions based on your family environment, right? So we know secure, anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. Very simply, the secure person generally feels comfortable with themselves, can handle their own emotions. When they feel distressed, they can take care of themselves or they can turn to somebody else and receive and expect to get emotional care and support and that it's okay. The anxiously attached person generally has a harder time being confident in themselves and it's going to be more prone to looking to other people to validate and support them. And even if they do get that person to do that for them, they may mistrust it. It may not feel real or true or sincere, even when it is. On the other side of that continuum, the avoidant person generally is going to have a hyper-reliance on themselves, taking care of themselves, meeting their own needs, and a more dismissing attitude towards other people being able to know, understand, and meet their emotional, relational needs. The fourth is the disorganized, and this person usually vacillates back and forth between the avoidant and the anxious attachment styles. When we're going to sit down and talk about our finances, if you have two people that are securely attached, they're going to have resonance. They're going to meet each other empathically, more likely. They're going to be able to handle each other's emotional distress that inherently comes up around money. The most common practice is the anxious person marries the avoidant person. And then we get what's called a distancer-pursuer or pursuer-distancer relationship. The anxious person is always pursuing the avoidant person. The avoidant person is feeling overwhelmed by this relational pursuing, so they pull out further, and then they're on this miserable merry-go-round. So when I'm working with clients, and that's part of what I'm trying to highlight in this book, is if you're in one of these insecure attachment styles, what we want to help you do is move towards more of a secure functioning. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And, you know, I feel like just that explanation alone, when people listen to hear can really get, uh, I guess, some compassion for themselves and their spouse. Because as you, as you described, if it's wired and pre-hardwired into us, of course, our, our expectations 
is our partners should act the way we think they should because that's the way we're we're wired. But like right. you're saying, it, it, you know, for the most part, I, I bet you, I, I would feel like it's a low probability that they're both the same attachment style. But it, it makes sense that we don't <laughs> see the same perspective if we have different attachment styles. So I just think that's such an empowering or insightful thing for people. So they, I guess, not ruminate on, oh, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with her? What's wrong with him? What's wrong with that person? I don't know if you've seen Oprah's newest book with Dr. Bruce Perry, but it's the title is called What Happened to You? And it, they're, what they're trying to do is shift the paradigm from what's wrong with you, which is what our mental health system is so focused on diagnosing what's wrong with you. Yeah. And you know, I was listening to an interview this morning with Louis Consolino, who's a huge thought leader in the field of therapy. And he's like, look, the paradigm for what's wrong with people changes every 10 years. I mean, he's been at it you know, for almost 40 years. So he's seen that... Like, the diagnosis de jour is narcissism, is ADD, is right. you know, whatever, right? And everyone has that. Mm-hmm. When we come to understand is labels help us to try to organize the way we experience and see things to, to share that and try to communicate back and forth. So even attachment in that way is a way, a system to describe what's happening between you and I, what where we right. want to go. But Attachment is really deeply connected with what happened. What did you experience in your caregiving environment? Many of the mental health diagnoses are more describing what's wrong with you or what's not happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they're not as easily linked through with experiences that created uh, psychological disruption and dysregulation. Mm. At the beginning of the podcast, we talked about reflection. Reflection at this point, when we think about our attachment system, helps us move into that question of how did my caregiving environment shape who I am? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for the way that I'm showing up? And for many people that grow up in environments where there's levels of trauma, not reflecting on it is safer than looking at it. Mm. So that's where the therapy piece or supportive environment and reading can help you move over that edge into reflecting on how your family experiences have shaped you instead of that most common psychological defense that we all know and love, denial, protects us from mm-hmm. really looking at how our families shaped us. And, you know, that, that makes me think of, you talk about like adaptive strategies that we take. And maybe can you touch on how, as a child, we experience, you know, whatever form of trauma and we adapt to, to survive. But when it then crosses over to like a maladaptive actions. And then can you bridge that into the partner relationship? I think your, your chapter and understanding your partner is really good, but yeah, just seeing how, when we have that denial of these maladaptive functionings that we developed, how can that show up with our partner? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of really good pieces here is I'm just picking a generic example, right? But let's say you grow up in an environment with the father is an alcoholic Right? And he has regular drinks at night and will find a rage. Being emotionally vulnerable and expecting him to care for you is not going to be helpful for you as a child. Learning how to shut your emotions off and rely on yourself to take care of yourself when you feel scared or overwhelmed is going to be far more productive psychologically. Right. Which is that avoided mm. orientation. The other side of it is trying to please and keep dad happy and smooth things out between him and mom so that he doesn't get so mad at mom. Maybe he doesn't get so mad at mom. Maybe he won't drink so much. And 
if I can just orchestrate everything, then it will all work out, right? And you can hear even the anxiety coming in my voice. Mm-hmm. So it's adaptive to try to get the environment to meet and regulate your emotional needs because psychologically, our brains are wired to help us regulate the flow of information about our experiences. Mm-hmm. But when we're in a dangerous or threatening environment or an environment where our parents can't accurately attune to what's happening with us enough of the time, we've got to do something to try to help manage that, right? So one of the fundamental processes of our brain is to regulate the, the flow of emotion within ourselves and to navigate or narrate the experiences that we're having. And when we're in distressing environments chronically or intermittently, without any acknowledgement, we're making these adaptations. Mm-hmm. But then if you get to adulthood, and they actually find yourself in an environment where your partner's not an alcoholic and they're stable and they're loving and they want to talk to you about your feelings, you're looking at them like they're crazy because that's not what you learned was a safe thing to do right. growing up. As a family therapist, often I'm helping the person gain insight into their own experiences from their own family mm-hmm. and being able to expand their perspective and develop empathy and compassion for their partner and their partner's experiences and their family. And depending on the person, that balance of what I'm focusing on will change substantially, right? Because I have some clients where, and they're typically more the anxious clients, they have deep compassion and empathy for their partner's troubled past background. And part of what attracted to them is they wanted to take care of them and save them and be the hero. Mm. That doesn't fly long-term in an intimate, like, adult intimate relationship. And so you got to help them start to look at their own story, and own their own story. And that helps balance the scales, right? Conversely, the avoided person can, can be dismissing of any story at all. And they don't want to look in the past or see how any of that might be contributing to what's going on. And so we're wanting to move them into that more fully so that they can use that information as for insight and showing up in a different direction. Well, thanks for explaining that. And I uh, just really appreciate the depth of your your knowledge in this area. And this is a money podcast, and we're certainly not talking about how to make uh, a higher rate of return in the S&P 500. And I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that we're not, because I feel like this is the conversations that, as we were talking earlier, help facilitate change, the, the long journey of change. Sean, I want to, can I interrupt on that? Yeah. Because I think you're absolutely 100% right. And yet I, I told you I traveled recently and uh, to try to protect this person's confidentiality, I'm not going to say where I traveled to on the podcast and all that, yeah. right? They're a highly educated professional. I'll just leave it at that, right? Okay, yeah. Long training arc, highly educated professional. We're in the pool, get talking, what do you do, what do you do, right? So he's like, oh, so you know, what do you do about investments? Like, what do you mm-hmm. recommend people do? What do you think about Bitcoin and crypto? And I kind of looked down and I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what do you mean? Is it, well, what do you think about commercial real estate? I don't know. I don't, I don't hold any. I mean, outside of, I don't even know if I have a REIT in my portfolio. I probably don't. But, you know, what was interesting is being able to recognize that here's this late 30s professional delay, you know, worked a long time to get the higher education, expert in their field, but they're waking up and they're realizing, I've got to figure out my investments. I got to figure out how do I build wealth? And I don't know how any of this works. Mm-hmm. But instead of him being able to say, hey, you know what? I feel scared and overwhelmed and I don't really know the right questions to ask. He's asking me, what do I think I should, what should I do here? What should I do here? Mm -hmm. And so I think 
part of that unique position is being able to take those opportunities and appropriately work with the underlying vulnerability that's driving those questions. Mm. Maybe segues to that financial maturity piece is we all do go through a financial maturation phase where that type of question actually makes a lot of sense in the early stage of financial maturation. Mm-hmm. But the things that we're talking about, I think we have the insight and perspective to say it would be really good to talk about that at the front end of your financial growth and right. development. Yeah. But most of us are not figuring out that we need this stuff until we've kind of mastered at whatever level that means how to do cash flow management, how to do mm-hmm. investments, how to do taxes, how to do insurance, how to do estate planning. And then it's like, oh, wait, I've got all those things working and it's still not working for me. What's going on? Right. I'm glad you brought that up too. And I, I, I have to also be careful, not be careful, just be cognizant that there's a lot of people who maybe don't even have the, the capacity to think about deeper meanings behind their money decisions because they're in the survival mode and, you know, income is not a luxury. So I, I want to be mindful that there, you know, there's a time and place that we need to talk about the tips and tools and techniques of investment. My own biases come in sometimes where I'm like, you know what, I, I, I focus so much on those tools and I ignored the, the, the emotional sides. And I do think as a whole, the Twitter finance, so to speak, often ignores the the deeper side of money. So absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, let's go into the the five stages and how this is all relating the our attachment styles to money, our relationship with money, our partners, and specifically this financial maturity, the five stages. Yeah. So when we think about these five stages of of maturity and our attachment system, how do these two things relate, right? One of the things that research helps us understand is that for people that are more securely attached, it can be safer for them to explore and expand their world and their relationships because they have an internal self-reliance and a confidence that if things don't work out, they can turn to somebody else that will be compassionate and care for them. Mm. You know, as babies, we're just absorbing whatever's in the environment in that very first stage to the second stage is like, start to become more aware of what's happening in our family and moving a little more third into the culture and you know, stage four, more into kind of an adult understanding. But stage five is that last, like really more synthesis and integrative place that we were talking about today is how do we bring all these pieces together? How do we bring my life story together with the way that I cash flow, with the way that I talk with my partner and have meaning and purpose in my life and make sure that that's all I want? You kind of have to be able to survey the whole landscape and pass through these different stages and that's where being able to look back and say, well, how did my family's experiences with money shape me? What kind of work experiences? I mean, I had an exercise with a couple recently where we did the, the family financial timeline. And what that exercise looks like is say just, you know, I know you probably don't know your parents' actual numbers, but what do you think their wealth accumulation looked like over time? You know, I was working with a partner and, and one partner said, do theirs and it was kind of squiggy lines, but it was going up. And I said, well, what's the scale? And he said, the top of the scale was $2 million. Oh, okay, great. You know, the other partners like shocked almost. It was normal because of the family wealth and the attitude towards money to be able to even articulate that. Hmm. In contrast, his partner grew up in a family where lower income and thinking about net worth was not even normative. And so even trying to get her head to wrap around what is net worth, what does this mean, what would it have been, and then trying to sketch it out. And it was lower and a little more static. And because of parental divorce, she was able to articulate, well, mom 
kind of continued on plateau because of government work and stability, but dad's employment went down and ended up in premature death. And so it was kind of a sadder story, but she estimated maybe moms and kind of talk spitballed through it. Uh, maybe 400,000 was the ultimate high, high water mark. That's a substantially different frame of reference around accumulation. And so it takes a lot of maturity to be able to enter into that reflective stance, to start asking these harder questions, to get to why do we feel so uncomfortable talking about money? The client reflected on, if my partner starts talking about money on the phone, I don't stop immediately. I just can't even handle it, right? So part of the attachment piece then is the partner is not fully effective in being able to help meet their partner in their distress with empathy and compassion. They kind of get lost with like, I want to help, but I don't know how to help. And when I've tried to help in the past, I've just screwed it up. So I'm not going to help. So that's where, you know, we're working through the relational skills of how to show up for each other when your partner's in emotional distress, recognizing the normative experiences, feeling it, especially based on some of the financial adversity that they had both seen. And you kind of stretching, if you will, I, you know, I don't do yoga regularly, but I've done it a little bit here and there. <laughs> Sometimes I like to think about it in yoga. It's like, we're just going to kind of slowly stretch this thing out a little bit more, mm-hmm. but we don't want to try to stretch to ourselves too quickly because coming in contact with the reality of our experience too quickly can be psychologically overwhelming. Right? So that's an important kind of principle on this journey of growth also is even if you could see yourself clearly all in one fell swoop, we couldn't handle it. It was just totally puts the system. <laughs> so, you know, that's, again, that reflection, making it more and more part of your maturing regular rhythm helps you slowly stretch it in a way that's manageable for you. Thanks for that. And so say this couple, and I think they're representative of many couples, they have these different attachment styles, these frames of reference of talking about money, not talking about money, of accumulation of wealth. And, and you know, I like how you pointed out that, say, one spouse wants to help. And it just made me think of earlier when you talked about how perhaps if one partner is maybe insecure in attachment style, we're talking about their emotions as a kid and trying to comfort them might be uncomfortable. So it's interesting how I could assume there's some situations where someone wants to help. They're, they're making an effort in their mind. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm just reaching out. I'm trying to help. And the other spouse is like, this is scary. What are you doing? So in that context around our money, if we have a situation like that, I guess what insight would you provide to both of those partners? Well, I think one of the biggest things that I try to start working with couples almost from the beginning is they've often gone to a place of assuming uh, malicious or bad intent. Mm. And I have a philosophical outlook. It's my own personal philosophical outlook that most people want to do the right thing and do right by the other person. Now, the way that they go about doing it might be completely misguided and wrong and inappropriate, but that doesn't mean their intent is bad. But because most of us, when we experience things as not happening in the way that we want them to happen, assign a negative intent or negative valuation to it, we set the trap for starting to see this person that we once fell in love with as the enemy, right? So part of what I'm doing and encouraging people to do is let's help to reframe this. And that's why I love attachment is let's normalize the human need to bond and connect. Let's normalize the fact that you've had experiences that make it threatening to try to connect and bond or overwhelming or threatening for you. Like there's nothing worse than 
wanting to be helpful and trying to be helpful and then getting the feedback that you're not doing it without any clarity about how to do it differently. Mm -hmm. I can then imagine defensiveness comes up out of you. Like what? (laughs) What do you mean? That's not helpful. Why are you so mad at me? Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Right. Because I think that's also part of that intrinsic human nature is that we want to be seen as good people. We want to try to do the right thing. Yes. We all have that shadow side where we sometimes do things a little more malicious or self-centered. I'm not naive to that. You know, part of the, right, that whole maturation journey of our life is really being able to work with your own, balancing your own self-interest with the interest of others, mm. right? Like part of that natural, in a different language, ego development is, you know, an infant is completely self-centered in the best sense of the The infant is not thinking about how can I make my mom happy as I breastfeed, mm. right? This is not the, yeah, no. when the, when the two-year-old begins to play, they're primarily focused on the enjoyment of play and bringing mm-hmm. pleasure to themselves. They will turn to the parent with the expectation the parent's going to respond with delight, joy, enamorment, curiosity. And when the parent doesn't, that can sting. What happens, though, in that relational process is the child is starting to develop part of that attachment template is, will the other person be there? Will they be interested in what I'm doing? Will they be there for when I want to come back? Can they delight in me? These are the precursors to developing that attachment pattern. And I'm sorry for listeners. I've just lost my train of thought and I'm not catching that train again. So we'll just catch the next one and go. <laughs> okay. That's all right. At the end, I want everyone to find out your website, your book, the online quiz for attachment style. But I really appreciate this insight about how our attachment styles really, really have a large link to how we think, feel, and behave around our money. And I encourage everyone to check out your book and your website because I... Like you said at the top, this is biology. It's not that we we're all we all have a version of this. And I think it's just so important you're doing that. Yeah. So my last question, I've asked you this question last time, I, I believe. <laughs> Let's imagine that I think this is an adaptation of George Kinder or Klontz or somebody, for sure the Klontz, but uh, let's imagine that you're 95 year old at end of life. Maybe it's maybe it's older by then. You're on the front porch looking out of this meadow, ocean, field, mountain, wherever. And I'm adapting this a bit for a chapter in your book, but you're tasked with writing your kids' kids a letter on what you've learned on writing a new money story. I know that's one of your last chapters in the book. What would be the overall theme of that letter? It's something that's really been resonating for me recently, and I I think it will continue to mature. And to your point, I really talk, again, that theme of reflection. This is a reflection question. Thinking about my own end of life, what's that legacy for the grand, grandchildren or great-grandchildren, maybe even at that point. Mm-hmm. In that would be, you have a money story, dear child. You've had some good experiences and you've had some painful experiences. Try to draw lessons from both. Remember that your parents and your caregivers are humans doing the best that they can. And find grace for yourself and the other people that have cared for you. Oh, nice. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Such good. Uh, I feel like I want to chat all day, but uh, you make it so comfortable and easy too. I really enjoy it. So Ed, why don't you let people know your, your website, your book? Yeah. 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 So healthyloveandmoney.com is the easiest way to kind of make entry into getting to know my work, you know, from there on the website, uh, you'll get a link to the book, which is also on Amazon, but you know, I think it's just easier, healthy, love and money. That's all you have to remember. Mm-hmm. You know, you can find the Instagram link, the LinkedIn link, the Facebook link. Mm-hmm. 
I'm excited. I'm going to be launching in January, actually, kind of a masterclass, 10 modules for couples that want to be on this journey of financial intimacy, understanding their attachment systems, going much deeper into the stuff that's in the book. And so that's going to be launching in January. There's already kind of a, yeah, I'm interested. I don't even know what you're going to do fully, but yeah, I'm interested. You can hit the the course page then and shoot me an email. And that way, as I get closer, I can get you more details on that. But it's going to, you know, it'll have a group community element. It's going to have guest presentations. Uh, I'll be working on this fall and getting ready for for couples because, you know, really what I want to say for that course is I want to bring my therapy office and everything I do for my clients here that I've grown so passionate about being able to do and bring it to a wider audience and help people Mm. really be able to feel good in their relationship with each other and money. Yeah, well, I I appreciate the work you're doing and even that idea of bringing it to more a wider audience, I think really speaks to helping people be more, this information more accessible. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Accessibility is a huge, huge piece. Yeah. The gift of the internet is accessibility. The challenge is figuring out what to access. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. That made me think of another topic that maybe it will be (laughs) safe for round three. Maybe I'll be the first round three year. Yeah. There you go. All right. Ed, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for your time.